It's Tuesday, April 12th. Thanks for choosing Real Talk today with your valuable time. We know that you got to pick and choose how you spend your time, how you invest your time, and it always means a lot when it uh, when it means that Real Talk is part of your daily routine. Whether you're walking the dog, driving home, maybe you're tuning in live on this Tuesday morning, we appreciate you being here. Very excited for the show today. Uh, David Knight-Legg will join us in about five minutes' time, uh, former principal advisor to Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney. He was the founding CEO of Invest Alberta Corporation. Uh, you may have seen him recently wrote for the Wall Street Journal a piece just a few days ago on Vladimir Putin's energy impetus and, and the, the energy uh, uh, implications of this war in Ukraine right now. If you're like me, uh, which I imagine you are, you're seeing this story unfold uh, as Mariupol, the city, this the city uh, seems to teeter precariously. Um, it seems inevitable that it'll fall into Russian hands and the implications of this, the death toll, the civilian death toll in the thousands. I'm watching international news coverage last night trying to wrap my mind around it and we make a commitment here on this show that we'll explore as many angles as we possibly can to help you to help me to help us understand what's going on what's driving it how might this war end and an interesting angle to come i'm sure from david knight leg and then in about a half hour's time we call him the titan of talk he has been an institution in uh, Canadian media. He spent some time working down in the States as well. As a matter of fact, won an Emmy, uh, did Charles Adler, uh, a short time ago, several months ago. The timing of this interview is not an accident. There, had to, there, was, there was a period of time where he could not grant interviews. It's how it works in media. But Adler left his nationally syndicated talk radio show, Charles Adler, tonight. And today, he grants his first interview interview back on the record since he left the am dial i can't wait for this i've been a long time fan of charles and just uh, seeing him and behind the scenes here getting him set up for today i'm i'm super excited yeah he's got an rtdna uh, that's like the the radio and television i mean if you're in canada if you're working in journalism talk radio uh, tv news in canada and rtdna lifetime achievement award is a huge deal and a few years ago charles was bestowed with that honor and i'm really excited to check in with him he's he's basically been uh, for the past number of years, my career mentor, and he's incredibly it. generous with his perspective and his advice and the time that he invests in people he cares about. And I think that that's a big reason why Canadians have felt such a connection to Charles for so many years. Uh, and uh, and this is going to be a great conversation. I know that we're probably we've already got questions coming in. You can hit us up I on our it. hashtag Real Tech RJ. People want to hear <laughs> what's Charles's take on the pipeline. What's his take on the U.S. senators coming up to you know? And so we'll get into it. We'll talk you know conservative leadership race. Federally speaking, we'll talk Jason Kenney's leadership review. I just want to see how Chuck's doing. Like Me he's, too. Like he's he's I don't know is is he like retired life? Like is he going to join us? You know, wearing sort of lounge wear and just hanging out, or is he going to be all suited up? I don't know. I we'll, we'll see. He, he doesn't seem like seem the to be, type. I just he, was gonna say he, yeah. he doesn't seem like he'd slow down. I don't think so. No. Yeah, I don't know if he's the guy that just puts his feet up, but we'll find out. So Charles Adler coming up in about a half hour. Uh, we'll get the show rolling right now by reminding you that this show doesn't happen without the support of our sponsors, and that includes the team at Bitcoin. Well, Bitcoin right now, and, and, and a lot of the other cryptocurrencies. If you're paying attention, took a bit of a, a hit yesterday. I saw somebody saying. I thought that this was supposed to be inflation-proof. That's what Pierre Polyev was saying, that, that Bitcoin, you can protect yourself from inflation. So what's up with this? And I was telling you yesterday, same sort of a deal. Like when the NASDAQ dives, crypto tends to take a bit of it. So why is that? If you're trying to wrap your mind around this, 
Maybe your questions are entry level. Maybe they're advanced. The team at Bitcoin Well wants to take them. They've got a team of real live humans ready for a little Q&A. I recommend them. You can find them under the sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, of course, the war in Ukraine continues, the death toll rising to unimaginable levels. Allegations of Russian war crimes as investigators are exhuming bodies from mass graves. Canadians and folks around the world, quite frankly, wondering what it's going to take to stop this Russian aggression. What's driving this Russian aggression? Uh, David Knight Legg is an advisor uh, to investment and political risk firms. Uh, he was the founding CEO of Invest Alberta Corporation, uh, served as a principal advisor uh, to Alberta Premier Jason Kenney up to a short time ago. And it's always a pleasure uh, to welcome David Knight Legg to the show. Thanks for making time for us. Hey, you're welcome, Ryan. Good to be here. Yeah, you were just back. You were just you were in transit. We wanted to talk to you yesterday. You were on your way back. Was it Switzerland, something like that? Your work kind of takes you all around the world. Yeah. Yeah, I was in Zurich actually uh, talking with some people about crypto. Actually, or just had it at the top of the uh, conversation there. Um, so yeah, a lot, lot going on around the world right now. A lot of, a lot of things that are linked in unusual ways. Uh, you know, of course, the thing that I was writing about for uh, certain people that are interested in it was the link between energy. And what's happening in Ukraine, but a lot that's happening with uh, cryptocurrency as well right now with, you know, as people have looked at what's going on with fiat currencies. Well, I, listen, I, I'll uh, intentionally leave some time in our conversation to talk to you about cryptocurrency because I know people would be interested in what you have to say about that. But let's lead uh, with the story garnering all of the international headlines right now. And this is Russian aggression in yeah. Ukraine in particular. People are looking at the city of Mariupol and uh, as it appears set to fall, uh, Ukraine's president acknowledging as much in an address to his citizens and to the world just the other day. Uh, you wrote yeah. uh, for the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago. People can check it out at WSJ.com. Putin Ukraine invasion is about energy and natural resources. Uh, you almost, you know, people that are suggesting that that perhaps Vladimir Putin uh, underestimated Ukraine. You're not convinced that that's the scenario right now. Well, you know, I, I do think he underestimated Ukraine, but I think the argument is not uh, the argument is actually not that he has one uh, and only one strategy. It's that he has a layered strategy and that he's highly adaptive. And he's proven that in the past. Um, the, you know, what he told us about himself at the beginning of this thing was that he was offended by the discussions of NATO expansion. He was offended by the uh, Maidan revolution and the, and the uh, democratization of, of Ukrainian politics. Uh, and he was offended by the fact that, you know, there was a, um, there was a lack of integration in the former Russo, Belarus, and Russian ethnic uh, Russian communities, which he you know, emphasized when he took Crimea. Uh, I think what he learned from Crimea that was a mistake was that you can do that in, in four or five days with special forces teams, basically decapitating the, the uh, operation at the head of state level. And that didn't work this time. It didn't work in Kiev. But the argument that that means that it's a total failure for him misunderstands what he did in Crimea in 2014, which was that he stole several hundred billion dollars worth of assets, laid claim to them, created an exclusive economic zone in the Black Sea, which gave him 
according to the Ukrainians at the time, 80% of all their offshore oil. And he proceeded within a year to get the West to start buying energy from him again. And so my concern and the concern that, uh, you know, was picked up by the New York Times writer, Brett Stevens, and then I ended up talking with uh, um, CBS News about it. And ultimately, just so there was total clarity on it, I encourage your listeners to go to the uh, Wall Street Journal article, because that's where I spell it exactly what my position is on this, is that he is actually going to lock down in the Donbass region all across the east through the Black Sea and basically lay claim to 90% of Ukraine's resources. And they they are very, very large uh, supply of, you know, sixth largest supply of coal in the planet. They are the second largest supply of gas in Europe. Um, most of it has been undeveloped, but a lot of that lack development has been because of very tactical moves by Russia to try and cut off Ukrainian development. And so my concern is that we are able to respond to this more effectively by understanding the threat that it poses. And the response is to get Canadian and, and American energy in place of Russian energy to offset what the Europeans have to have right now. Right now, they're paying five to 800% more. All through this war, they've been paying Putin six to $800 million every single day into unsanctioned banks in Russia that he insists that they pay into. Um, even the Americans are paying about $100 million a day through this uh, to the Russians for their oil. This is insane. You know, these are NATO countries. We have enough supply in Canada, the US to supply this gas. And, um, and the gas is essential for the decarbonization efforts of moving the electrical grid across Europe off of coal onto gas. And, and it's time, I think, for North America in particular to get out of its own way on energy not let the climate energy discussion become this false choice and to start to build the kind of global trade uh, structures we need to provide the gas that's needed in Europe. And also, you know, as you know, one of my pet and favorite topics, uh, particularly into Asia. Well, so David, you, you know, we've got politicians. I mean, I can think of Alberta's premier as one, your former boss that, that saying, you know, this, this uh, crisis in Ukraine is, is yet another opportunity to have these conversations about where the world gets its energy. Uh, and yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, you look back on the conversations about so-called ethical oil and everything else that, that some Canadians have been driving over the last 15 or 20 years. And you while, while there can be some good points made, I mean, in particular, you know, would you rather buy your oil off the Saudis or buy your oil off Canada with stringent environmental standards? People will say, well, yeah, the argument makes sense. But yet the market doesn't seem to respond like Irving Oil in eastern Canada still bringing their oil in from outside the country. So why does the argument not land? And do you have any confidence that this context, this war in Ukraine could maybe move the conversation where others haven't? Yeah, look, I think I think we just have uh, a lot of hangups um, in in the way that we've talked about climate change and the way we've talked about a transition from hydrocarbons, fossil fuels into renewable energy and the, the huge gap in popular understanding of what that means and how fast that can happen has meant that there's a political cost to being overtly supportive of our energy sector. And you can see it in, in sort of the schizophrenia currently in the federal budget. Um, uh, you know, Canada has the has more oil than Russia, China, and the United States put together. We're an incredibly strategic reserve of oil, and there's global demand skyrocketing for oil, particularly in Asia. Uh, but we can't get it out right now. You know, and that's no one that's no one's fault but Canadians. That, that's simply a political inability to come to terms with what it's going to take in terms of getting the right infrastructure in place to get it out. Russians are happy to get it out. 
You know, so are the Saudis, so are the Iranians, so are the Venezuelans. We've got this deeply ironic moment where you have the president of the United States cap in hand to Russia during this whole war in Vienna right now, Russia is operating as an interlocutor between Iran and the United States. And they've sent an emissary down to talk to Venezuela about oil access, energy access. This is crazy. You know, uh, the, the U.S. has been taking every day exactly the same amount of oil that they would be getting through the KXL pipeline. So from, from Russia. So, you know, just over 800,000 barrels a day coming to the U.S. from Russia of oil that they could be getting through KXL. So it's worse for the climate because the Russians don't have nearly the ESG standards that we do. Um, it's worse for the climate because they're, they're taking it on seaborne shipping rather than through a pipeline, which is far more secure than all the alternatives that are out there. But the, the reason that it's happening, if you talk to somebody in the Democratic Party and they say, look, this is kind of a third rail issue because the president made this promise to Bill McKibben and 360.org and some of the really big sponsors of his campaign out of California. So he's got to keep it. He's just got to shut it down. So so what you've got, both the Liberal Party in Canada, the Democratic Party in the U.S., is kind of a state capture of a certain way of thinking about the climate and thinking about energy where it's become a false choice. And while the West is incapable of getting out of its own way on some of these things, the despotic countries are happy to fill in the gaps. And so what you have right now is all of Western Europe is on a short leash to Vladimir Putin and they can't do anything but do what he tells them to do or he can turn off the lights. Mm. And so that's a that's the state of play. And I do think that there are people really waking up to this, particularly in the United States. I think the fact that they've lost energy independence for their own country uh, is, has been a huge wake up call. And I think that the political considerations, unfortunately, hasn't taken the rationality around the fact that democracies should be the source of energy rather than despotic states. Uh, it, what it's really taken is enough voters facing down the fuel pump and realizing that their household wallet is getting compressed by the fact that whatever the policies are, it's resulting in way too much being spent to heat homes, keep the lights on or put gas in their car. So when you say- And so that's where you're starting to see pressure come up where there's a desire for a political solution across the aisle. When you say that you think that, you know, Americans or some Americans are waking up to this, um, what do you mean in particular? You think that that means that you think that the tide could turn or- Maybe even the opinion, the conviction within the Oval Office might evolve or change with regards to, I mean, you mentioned Keystone XL, Senator Joe Manchin's up in Alberta right now talking to energy minister, talking to the premier, um, you know, I mean, acting like that pipeline's not yet dead, uh, despite the president's position on it. You think that no, it's that, not dead? No, no, it's going to be back. I mean, that, that pipeline is a zombie that just doesn't die. Uh, it's coming back. Um, it has to come back. We, we, you can't have a situation where the world's largest, most productive economy is starving for oil and they're cap in hand to Venezuela, Iran, and Russia for it. I mean, this doesn't work long term. And, and, and you know, Senator Joe Manchin is a Democrat. Um, he's in a coal rich state. Uh, he understands the reality of how the fossil fuel stair step works, right? Look at, look at Canada right now. I mean, Canada is in this incredibly embarrassing position where we were actually lecturing at points, the United States for leaving the Paris Accord, but the US has reduced their total global emissions from the Paris Accord baseline by over 15%. Taking out last year, last year was the highest reduction ever, but last year was a weird year because of COVID. Over 20, they're 22% right now. I think they're gonna come back. But Canada, as of 2019, the last normal economic year is at exactly the same place that it was in 2005, 719 megatons of carbon emissions. 
exactly the same place. We had zero change. And it actually, we, had, we, we were in a better place in 2015, but the Liberal Party is far more committed rhetorically to environmental uh, positions than the Conservative Party has been. And yet during the five years they've been in control, emissions have gotten worse. Our performance has gone down on the emissions question. But the punchline is it won't matter. The current approach doesn't matter. All emissions are global. All emissions are global. Our 719 megatons is a total rounding error. It's 1.4% of global emissions. It used to be 2% of global emissions. The reason it's 1.4 is because you've had a 28% increase in the total pool of global emissions, but we've held ours flat, right? And that is how, you know, the number one way for us to become the first net zero country uh, in the in the planet is we have enough gas to actually totally replace thermal coal in the Chinese electrical grid. And by doing that, um, not across the entire grid, that grid is massive, but China just built five times the coal-fired capacity of the rest of the world combined last year. They don't are they are not keeping any promises with respect to Paris. But we could offset more than 719 megatons plus the incremental uh, carbon emissions we would have from producing more gas. By shipping that into China, we can, we can remove far more global emissions than our entire country utilizes in a year or creates in a year. That's our potential as a nation. That's how big a resource base we have. That's how powerful we could be in the world right now, solving a fundamental uh, ecological environmental problem by reducing global emissions. They're not called domestic emissions for a reason, right? They're global. We can help offset that, doing exactly what the US has done to achieve their emissions reduction exactly what Europe has been trying to do, unfortunately, instead of by producing their own shale gas, by buying it from a dictator like Putin. So I think this conversation is starting to become, the adults are starting to get back into the room again and say, look, if we're serious about global emissions as a nation, we got to stop it with these sort of small ball attempts to tax certain things, right? Useless. will make zero difference to the planet, right? If you want to make a big difference, do what the U.S. did with domestic uh, capacity, do what Europe did by trade. We can be the trading partner into China, India, Korea, Japan. We can remove far more carbon from the atmosphere than the total footprint that we create. That's what they need and want from us. All the speeches mean nothing. All the jetting around to these environmental conferences have meant nothing. Mm. And unless we do it, then Russia's happy to fill in the gap. And that's part of what I talked about in the Wall Street Journal. He's, he's been, uh, Vladimir Putin's been busy doing deals with China and India which is one of the reasons why India is so quiet on the sanctions and hasn't been participating. Uh, and it's very dangerous. If you empower these despots, they use energy not simply as an economic wedge, but as a geopolitical weapon, which is what you see happening right now. We're talking to David Knightleg. You can also link to his uh, recent interview on uh, CBS News via his Twitter account, Knightleg. And we tweeted that out from our official account, Real Talk RJ, earlier this morning. You know, you've heard that metaphor, I'm sure, before when people talk about energy flow or energy transport, let's say, you know, pipelines, essentially, and use the metaphor of, of, of cities and commuter routes and ring roads and talk about how it, it's yeah. not necessarily intuitive, you know, where this is going, uh, to ease traffic flow by simply widening the roads again and again and again. You want to explore alternative avenues like public transportation and others. In the context of this conversation, let me ask you, when we talk about the, the price hikes, for example, the pain that people see at the pumps or in heating their homes and how this may drive their personal conviction or political action on things like energy sources and relationships. I mean, what, what role do renewables play in this? At some point, when we take a look at this reliance, this dependence on oil and gas and the political instability and everything else that comes with
with it. Where do renewables fit in? You're an expert on investment. So what does that conversation look like? Look, I think renewables are great, but we have to understand the characteristic of each one of these different things we've got. And all of these things are great. You know, if, if you're in Bangladesh right now, Ryan, you're, you, you, we can't ship wind molecules or sunlight molecules to Bangladesh. You know, Alberta is the headquarters for sol solar and wind in, in Canada. It's not shippable, right? It's not transferable. You can't help the places that are struggling the most by having to use biomass uh, in, in the wider population struggling with poverty or having to use coal to fire their electrical grid because it's low cost and accessible. The one low cost accessible thing that we can send around the planet because we're only 35 million people and there's you know seven and a half billion people out there, right? The places where the emissions are the greatest and have the greatest challenges need transferable assets. And so that's why gas is so important because it provides the same amount of energy at half the emissions as, as thermal coal, which is what all these countries that are principally dealing with trying to move another 1.5 billion people out of poverty into a middle class, so their kids have the same chances our kids have, that energy intensive requirement on the grid is what we're trying to solve for. Canada is doing fine in terms of its emissions, right? You can't do much for Canadian emissions because we already had a pretty th clean grid due to our use of gas and our, our, our amazing uh, hydro out east. Um, but what we can do in the planet is actually transfer our gas. We can't transfer our, our solar or our, uh, or our wind. So that, that's one feature of gas that makes it super important. And the fact that we have so much of it makes it super important. Look, I, I think it's an all of the above answer. We want to use solar wherever we can. I love what you know Musk is doing in, in some ways. I think it's important for people to know that, look, electric vehicles, most of them, most places in the world run on coal. Most Teslas run on coal all over the world. In China, they all run on coal, right, uh, through the grid. So unless you change the fundamentals of the major sources of the major demand of energy that creates the electricity that we're demanding more and more from every, you know, household, then you haven't actually fundamentally changed the emissions, emissions equation, most of which is happening. And most of the growth the last 20 years has been, uh, been located in Asia. So transferability is super important. I am, I am really excited about hydrogen and Edmonton is going to be one of the big global players in hydrogen. That's what I was working on when I stepped uh, back from uh, Invest Alberta. We got Rick in there as CEO. It's something I continue to, to help out on, uh, having great conversations with some of the world's largest, most sophisticated scientific companies that are fascinated with the potential for hydrogen, particularly on heavy lift solutions like rail which Edmonton is centered on and, and uh, trucking. And I think that that's going to be one of those, you know, it's going to take a while for it to, to reach the right kind of economies of scale. The other one that I really love is small modular nuclear. And this is something that, that uh, uh, Fort McMurray is going to be um, seeing some of the latest, greatest, most interesting technology on small modular nuclear as a way of creating a carbon zero method for the energy required to do extraction. So these innovations that are on the horizon are absolutely phenomenal and uh, couldn't be more exciting. We're, but we're going to have to be good at all these things. And Canada can do it. We can do. We can. We can ship our uh, you know lowest cost landed gas on the planet to compete with the Russians to take away their market in China. I'd love to see us do it and get out of our own way to do that. And I think and I hope that as we see these things start to really have human tragedy attached them it forces a much clearer light, much more logic around, what are we actually trying to do here? How are we gonna do it? And what role can Canada play in the globe? 
not just our domestic politics, right? What, are we, what role can we play in the globe given the extraordinary resources we've been blessed with as a super huge nation with a very, very small population? Uh, David Knightleg is the former chair as well of the ESG Working Group for the uh, province of Alberta. And as mentioned, former principal advisor for Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney, who was down in Red Deer this past weekend, as you know, obviously speaking to a, a relatively small and curated group at a Red Deer hotel as part of this leadership review. Uh, Kenny says, as Don Braid writes in a recent column for the Calgary Herald, he'll quit if he loses, but he's pleading for unity. Uh, for the United Conservative Party to keep its you, to stay united heading into the next provincial election. If you were still advising Alberta's Premier, what would you be telling him? What are the important points that, that he needs to make? Don't need to remind you. Don't need to point out that the polling numbers aren't as strong as he'd like to say the least. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it's such a, you know, I think the, the Conservative Party, you know, provincially and nationally, I, Ryan, I think it's something the DNA of conservatives, maybe it's like the, the libertarian streak or something, but it reminds me of, of, you know, that part in the Braveheart film where he's about to have, they just get unified on fighting the English. And then by the time the night's out, they're too busy fighting each other and, you know, planning, uh, planning revenge to even think about uh, fighting the other guys. And it's, it seems like there's something kind of, you know, congenital sort of issue internally with always letting the perfect be the enemy of of the pretty good and i think in the case of premier kenny really good um i i also think that there's a tendency and i've seen this with you know even some of my friends in the ndp and elsewhere you know this is not about individual people you know and i, I think i think that politics is a little bit of a blood sport that interests political nerds like me you know maybe if my family and friends are in the indication, maybe that's 10% of us, you know, care maybe, that much. Yeah, and, maybe five. And, and <laughs> follow, follow the intricacies of, you know, which player is potentially, and, and actually 90% of people are just like, they're getting on with their lives. They want, the, they're sort of like, look, I do my job every day. Just go away and do your job. Do it as well as you can. I'll vote for you when I want to vote for you. Uh, if you can prove to me that what, your plan for my province and for the place that I want my kids to inherit is better than the other person's plan. I'll give you my vote. And if it's not, I'm not going to give you my vote, but stop this crazy drama all the time. Right. And it's, it's sort of a, I think that, I think that the thing that I like about the premier so much is he's incredibly intensively hard worker. You know, I was very close to him and I, I told him this, I had been working with CEO of the ninth, ninth largest bank. I was running strategy for him globally and the premier puts in at least those hours. You know, he just cranks on this stuff. He's got things that, about his personality a lot of people don't like, things that people do like. But this, this is not about an individual person, right? It's not about, and I realize leadership. But with him, are David, it kind of with, with people. But this is about what the province needs right now. But and it I think does the focus feel got to be on our economic development. That's what you would advise, and I would agree with you. But but I think that this is about an individual person a little bit. I think I think that that that's something that's quite unique in this scenario, or maybe not unique, but at least with Kenny, people feel personally. Uh, either either really annoyed at him, upset at him, or they're big fans of his. And I think that he fans those yeah. flames. And he's got his his fervent supporters. And then he's got people that would that would do anything to prevent his government from 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 winning again in 2023. I'm just not. 
I mean, with regards to I don't think it's I don't think that any political leader at any level has had it easy to say the least through COVID. I can't even imagine how difficult the job is. But I'd be curious to know, like in the back rooms, I mean, you're when your principal advisor, did do you see this party on a collision course right from the very beginning? I mean, like to, to get it together, to bring the Wild Rose and the PCs together to win an election. I mean, the enthusiasm there. Uh, there was a great column I mentioned, uh, Don Braid, describing the the, the cult or the vibe in Red Deer over this past weekend. He said, you know, two and a half years ago, that place was rocking with 3,000 people. Now there's 100 people in there. Obviously, some implications yeah. for that. And, 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 and talking about how maybe this ultimately might be inevitable. Like maybe it's impossible for Alberta small C conservatives to maintain one big party where everybody gets along. The premier takes fire from both sides on, on, on a lot of issues. Well, you know, Ryan, I, I just I think that it's a little bit like what you saw happen when the Reform Party and the federal conservatives became one party, mm. you know, um, and and um, I just think there is sort of a period of like this is happening in a pretty compressed timeline. You did an amazing job kind of creating startup conservative party, unifying a lot of different factions, holding those together through the through the cabinet and the caucus. And now. You know, through COVID, I think you've you've got so much political ferment. I mean, I'm in I'm in Europe right now. I was back in Hong Kong and Singapore a month ago. I mean, there is not a single politician that is in in shape with respect to their uh, base or their their pop, populace right now. I think it's a, I think it's a particularly tough time. I think people have had a very hard couple of years, and that frustration is coming out. I think one thing that's unique about a more populist conservative movement is the the areas for venting that frustration are structured in the constitution of, of the UCP in a way that means that you know you could have this stuff work its way out through this process. I think the premier is going to be fine coming out of this. And I think but I think the the task is going to be finding the key policies that everybody can agree to. Right. And you know when we when we wrote those out back when we were running the campaign, there's a specific reason why we put everything, you know, some friends of mine were teasing me about it saying, no one's gonna read this, but the point was it was all written out there. And I, I think that the next phase of this has to be returned to the debate about those policies, what they mean for Albertans, what they mean for the next generation of Albertans. And then the leadership piece, because I, I agree with you completely, it's very much about one person right now, but I think that's something that I, I know the premier wouldn't want it to be about, I think that he wants it to be about a set of ideas about what will make Alberta work better. And those ideas have to be, you know, debated with Rachel Nolley's NDP as well. And, and that clash has got to happen for Albertans to be able to pick which kind of path they want the province to go down. And, um, and, and so I think that my hope is that this is, and I'm, I'm, I'm far away from it right now, but my hope is that this is a step towards further cementing the fact that we can have these disagreements within a party structure, but ultimately we go through this and then we get back to work to doing the, the work that Albertans care about. David, before we let you go, and I sure appreciate your time, um, you mentioned crypto. We didn't. This wasn't on the list of things that we said we might touch on, but I'm sure you won't <laughs> mind. Um, as mentioned, you, you've obviously been a finance expert for a long time. You've worked for the big banks. You've worked with the big banks. Um, generally speaking, I won't get the question too focused, but, but what's your take? I mean, when you're in those boardrooms and when you're talking to people about the future of cryptocurrency, some people think it's it's going to be nothing in five years. Some people think it's the future. I mean, what's the perspective in those boardrooms? Well, it's definitely, I mean, 
Look, the best way to understand it is not to just call it currency. The best way to understand it is to think about it as a combination of two things that, that have started to have a very powerful kind of valence effect. And the two things are open source software, which we had from the beginning with, do you remember Linux? Well, I mean, I'm not smart enough to understand it, but I remember hearing about it. Yeah, yeah. So what the big movement back then was that suddenly instead of having all your software made by employees of big companies like a Microsoft or a Google, you could have open source software. So any really smart coder in Venezuela could work on a project with somebody in England who could work on it with somebody at Bell Labs who could work on it with someone in Russia, right? And what that meant was you could use parallel processing by linking all these computers together and linking all the intellectual property, these coders together. You could come up with software that was much better could do a lot more and could be built way faster than sitting inside an enterprise, any one enterprise. That was a big, big deal, right? And now Linux is kind of the operating basis for a lot of everything we do on our computing. You're seeing this breakout in things like cloud now, right? Which, which people sort of understand on the enterprise side. So about 10 years ago, um, you had cryptography started to reach the next level of of sophistication and part of this is to do with how fast processing speeds could work and part of it had to do with the development of artificial intelligence ais and other things so what you've got now with with what they're now calling web3 thankfully because i think that's changing it away from just cryptocurrency is you're putting these two things together you're putting open source software and cryptography together what that means is um, the cryptography means that you can protect and you can um, provide through existing systems all kinds of protected functions. Big one is the financial system, right? So you and I can buy Bitcoin and, and we can be secure in the fact that we have it. It'll always be attached to us, maybe through a pseudonym or a particular string of numbers, but we'll have that cryptocurrency. And no one government, not the Canadian government, US, Venezuelan government, Russians, can take that away from us. As long as we have our string of digits and we know how to access it, we can access it anywhere in the globe. And if you look at the, you look at the guys that were really pushing Bitcoin about uh, eight, nine years ago, it was, it was guys from Latin America, particularly Venezuela. Uh, a guy named uh, Wences Cesares, um, uh, somebody named uh, Mickey Malka, a few others were saying, look, the amazing thing about this stuff is it would allow people that are in countries where you maybe can't trust the government uh, and, and where maybe currencies will continue to debase and people could lose all the stuff they worked for all their life. And you can actually have something that's held effectively in the cloud by everybody that utilizes it rather than having a single government function. Now, the debate that's going on is, is that going to actually threaten the sovereignty of fiat currencies at some point? And the European Union just announced that they're gonna look into that U.S. has just released a paper on it. That's where the debate's at right now. So I think you're going to see a lot of volatility in cryptocurrencies, yeah. but it's absolutely here to stay. And the development of non-fungible tokens and a bunch of other things that are taking off is, is going to happen. And Alberta has got some amazing uh, global firms coming in and out right now uh, that are the powerhouses in this space. Part of it to do with the way that they can fund the massive processing systems around the creation of the of the uh, cryptocurrency blocks uh, and part of it because we've got some great coding talent and we've got specializations in related areas like AI machine learning and other things that are very important for tracking and solving for uh, the complexity around this stuff but yeah it's absolutely here to stay it's just going to be a question of how it will be regulated yeah yeah fascinating to watch we were touching on the show just the other day about El Salvador's 
president essentially calling Bitcoin FU money and pushing back on, on the U.S. Yeah. And of course, the Americans, it's all over their radar and a fascinating story to watch. Always appreciate different perspectives on it. David Knightleg, welcome back to the show. And, and thanks for giving us your time today. We appreciate it. Did you just have a birthday? I did yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. How 40, old, 45, pal. <laughs> so still looking good <laughs> well thanks very much you gotta so, trim that beard i mean i can't see you on this but yeah I, you know that last picture i saw of you on your profile picture you look like a cartel member so maybe it's time to trim that beard yeah well i was yeah. on vacation so you know i was uh, <laughs> i was behaving like one too in a certain sense <laughs> trying to try to play a couple money games yeah. on the golf course to no success so there you go yeah. anyway All right, nice man. to see you david well, thanks for doing this Good to speak again. Yeah, Take care. You bet. Uh, that's uh, David Knightleg was the founding CEO of Invest Alberta Corporation. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Knightleg. Let us know what you think about what you heard. Uh, talk at RyanJesperson.com is the best way to get in touch. The Titan of Talk is coming up in just a second. But before we do, we're going to pay a few bills, and we're going to do that first by reminding you how proud we are to partner with our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. They're particularly excited about their new lineup. They're sick of them, these signature stack burgers. You can find these at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and if you're in Sherwood Park, Baseline Road as well. My personal recommendation is the Loaded Steakhouse signature stack burger. You've got the bacon, you've got the onion rings. These ones, you can make them a single, double, or a triple. The triple takes you up to a half pounder. You make sure you let them know you're there because you heard about them on Real Talk at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. While you're out in Sherwood Park, why not swing by Sherwood Dodge? They've got a great selection of that full Jeep lineup as well as Canada's best-selling truck, the back-to-back-to-back Motor Trend Truck of the Year. That is, of course, the Ram. I'm right now driving the half-ton version, that 1500 Longhorn. Absolutely love it. Can't wait to pull a boat this summer. Of course, they've got their way all the way up to the heavy haulers, the Ram 3500s, and a great pre-owned selection. You can browse them online, Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, via the Sponsors tab on our website. Our friends at Local Environmental want you to know that we are accepting submissions for Trash Talk. That comes up every Friday as we wrap up our week here on Real Talk. Local Environmental's been sponsoring that fan favorite segment since inception. They've been keeping it local for 25 years, still family owned and constantly growing their footprint across Alberta and Saskatchewan, including new services like portable toilets and fencing and water hauling and vacuum trucks. Whatever you need, they've got you covered at competitive prices. They'll fight for your business. You can find them online at localenvironmental.ca. And if you're in the mood to just get the heck out of Dodge, if you're looking for a sunnier locale and you're going to be flying out of Edmonton International Airport, we encourage you to park at Jet Set Parking. I did just a week and a half ago. Super simple. The promo code, you want to use the promo code REALTALK at jetsetparking.com. Make sure you book at least 24 hours in advance. You can book for travel all the way through to the end of the year. And the promo code REALTALK gets you parking for $7 a day. Are you kidding me? That's jetsetparking.com. The promo code REALTALK. Dealing with Jetset, I guarantee you'll love it. All right, well, our next guest uh, is one of the most talented 
talk radio personalities that North America has ever seen. He's got an Emmy Award to prove it. He's got an RTDNA Lifetime Achievement Award. He's a personal friend, a longtime legendary host on both radio and television. They call him the Titan of Talk. What a pleasure to welcome to the show, Charles Adler. How are you doing, pal? Ryan, uh, we're doing well. Uh, I, I, I hope I don't disappoint the mountain of cerebral viewers that, that you've got based on the interview with with Mr. Leg. Uh, I, I can't I can't compete in that in that high terrain. Oh, give me a break. Uh, for decades, people have been looking to you, Charles, for Canadian common sense, and, and you've been delivering monologues off the cuff on uh, an incredible array of, of subject matter. One of the things I've, I've loved about tuning into your show before I got to know you personally is that people came to you for your take, whether you were talking about the war in Ukraine or whether you were talking about perhaps political scandal at a provincial or a municipal level, whether you were talking about elections or whether you were talking about, as the radio coaches say, the dog poop on the sidewalk, the stuff that everybody can relate to. People always cared about what you had to say. You've got to cultivate a relationship like that with your audience, don't you? Well, it's an amazing audience. Uh, it's it's diverse. It's all those words that are, are used in modern parlance. But, you know, for, from my perspective, it's just a, a very demanding audience because they get used to the, uh, as you say, the, the variety of topics that one gets into and why does one get into a variety because to me that's where the real human mind goes there are some people who are hyper specialized in a particular subject i'm not like that uh i'm uh, you know the, the proud uh, scion of, of people who ran general stores for, for for many generations in the old country and in europe and that's how I look at my show. It's a it's a general store. Mm -hmm. Well, I can let you know that our live chat right now, and and the majority of the people that hear this interview, Charles, they'll hear it later. They'll 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 stream it on demand. They'll download the podcast. But but the, the hundreds of people that are joining us right now are are losing their minds that you're here with us right now. Just in all caps, <laughs> people are just saying Charles Adler. People are excited to have you here because they haven't heard your voice for a while, Chuck. It's it's been several months since you stepped away from the AM dials. What have you been up to? How's life been? Well, I turned the mute on about uh, nine months ago. You know, something uh, happened that should never happen to a talk show. I got, I got really bored. I mean, it was to a point where, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I'd almost, you know, fall asleep on the air. And, uh, you know, some people say, Chuck, you should, you should never admit that. I, I don't care. I, my, <laughs> my life is, is an open book. Um, and that's just the way it was. So, it was, you know, definitely time. <laughs> it was definitely time to, to move on. This isn't about blaming anybody. This could be just as simple as as age or the boundless amount of curiosity I have. And I was uh, curious about things that, you know, were beyond uh, the scope of, of the show. So life has been good. You know, I've been uh, relaxed. I've been uh, doing a little bit of uh, consulting. Uh, you know, I'm a private sector person. So I've got uh, clients who, for some reason, think that I might be the right person to help uh, help with some media coaching so i've been doing some of that and that's a lot of fun right all right on well it's it's amazing to hear your voice again and and i've been i mean you and and i have a special relationship that I, that i don't mind divulging is i've i've looked to you for wisdom i've looked to you for opinion i've looked to you for for coaching quite frankly and, and you've certainly been an amazing friend and an amazing resource there and i'm always curious to pick your brain on on some of the storylines that we're seeing i was just talking to david Knightleg, you know former principal advisor to alberta's premier who finds himself now essentially fighting for his job not on the campaign trail 
trail Charles, uh, but trying to keep his party together, trying to keep the support of party members in this leadership vote where the premier insists it's got to be 50% plus one, though I can't imagine a premier sticking around with 50% plus one approval. Uh, you've never minced words when it's come to Jason Kenney. You, you had, you've had a long time awareness of him, a relationship with him. You've spoken with him uh, many times. What's your take of the state of Jason Kenney's government in Alberta right now? Well, Jason Kenney was uh, a very, very close uh, friend of mine. And of course, uh, there was a night a little over two years ago where I felt completely uh, bushwhacked, uh, com completely betrayed by how he handled uh, an interview that we had. And uh, some people feel that interview went off the rails and other people you know, say much kinder things about that particular interview. But life certainly for me and Kenny changed uh, after that. Um, relations were, were completely severed and uh, some people tried to you know, build some bridges and that never happened. So I just want to put that on the plate for you when people say sometimes, you know, Chuck, it sometimes sounds personal between you and Kenny. Well, it is personal. And uh, for those people, I mean, you know, Mr. Leg, Mr. Nightleg tried to make the case that this was about uh, issues and ideas. And as you push back on that, uh, you know, quite rightly, no, it's about an individual. The leadership review is not about ideas and issues. It's about confidence or lack thereof in Mr. Kenny. I felt a little over two years ago when we did that interview that he failed the test of leadership. He failed the test of trust, credibility, integrity, morals. I could go down the line. And I felt at that time that if he continues down that path, whatever path he was on, for whatever reason he chose to be on that path, if he continued on that path, he would be a one-term premier. And today, he very much looks to most of us like a one-termer. Hmm. You've, uh, I mean, for the majority of your career, lion's share of your career, you broadcast your, your nationally syndicated show out of a, a, a city that I know you just you love. I mean, you were, you got lots of love for Winnipeg. Uh, you did uh, several years of your show out of Vancouver. Uh, you, you grew up in Montreal, correct? I mean, you, 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 you've lived across the country, but you've always felt... Uh, I've picked this up. I mean, you've you've spelled it out. You felt a real affinity for Alberta, um, and you and you you've really I think had a, a clear understanding of the politics and the unique dynamics in Alberta. Do you think that it's possible with the rural factors at play, with the long-held political affiliations, with the progressive nature of Alberta's cities to a certain degree? Do you think it's possible to keep a conservative party united in Alberta for longer than one four-year stretch? I don't know, because this idea that uh, the two conservative parties have uh, more similarities than they have differences, I just don't buy that. I mean, the only the only way to sell that uh, horse is to say, well, they're both against the NDP. It's not good enough. You know, it's not as a voter, it's not good enough for someone to say, well, you know, if you don't like Trudeau, then you've got to vote for, you know, for Polyev, for instance. And, uh, you know, if you're not crazy about Rachel Notley, well, you've got to vote for, for Jason Kenney. I just think that insults the intelligence of people. There is no natural unifying bridge right now between the two factions of the Conservative Party. And frankly, there are far more than two factions, but let's just say, say two for the purpose of the conversation in Alberta, you know, the, let's call it the Wild Rose faction and, the, and the, the PC faction. And I think that was really brought out and borne out in the recent pandemic, which, you know, I call it recent, you know, it's it, people say, Chuck, don't don't call it that. It's still ongoing. Well, of course it is. And we're, we're about to enter another wave, a, a sixth wave. But I think the pandemic really showed us the fissure between the two conservative sides. And Jason Kenney did not acquit himself well. He just uh, played himself as kind of the victim of both sides. 
instead of being the, the chair of the board and unifying both, he ended up dividing people against each other. I don't even know, uh, and I'm not giving him a pass on this, Charles, you know that, but but I don't know how you would manage that. Like that, That's why I'm always curious to pick people's brains that are senior political strategists or principal advisors or chiefs of staff to say how, how on earth – uh, like would someone like Jason Kenny? It might be. Maybe it's a little bit different if you're John Horgan. Maybe it's. I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit different if you're if you're the premier of Quebec or Prince Edward Island. But but in Alberta, to, to, when you say to be the chair of the board, like what does that look like with regards to COVID policy? Uh, you've got a, a politician has no option but to politic. And when you have pull from both sides of your party, and I'm certainly painting with broad stroke brushes here. But I don't know how you manage that without alienating like 50% of your support. It's it, it's a tough gig. Look, uh, based on the British Columbia, and I did something there I'd never done in my life before, never thought I would ever do. I, I voted NDP. Now, why did I vote NDP? I wasn't voting for, for, for socialism. I don't, I don't cut it as a socialist. And no, no one who knows me thinks I do. So I wasn't voting for socialism. I was voting not for John Horgan or the NDP. I was voting for Bonnie Henry. And John Horgan was smart enough to put Henry up front. Now, Kenny thought about doing that a time or two, but he would then constantly undercut his Bonnie Henry. I don't know whether you and I would, would agree or, or disagree on that. But, um, you know, a, a person who started out, she was the, the top medical officer in Alberta, and she started out, Hinshaw, as who I'm talking about, Cortina Hinshaw, she started out with a lot of credibility, but after going through the, the Kenny machine, as it were, uh, she ended up losing her credibility, and, and that's unfortunate. But what's unfortunate for politically for Mr. Kenny is without a strong top medical officer, you can't navigate COVID. You, you just can't. And I, I'll never understand why he, in so many ways, and his crew decided to, to throw Dina Hinshaw under the bus. Yeah, I don't know. Scapegoat, take some heat off. I don't know. There's probably strategically a bunch of reasons. How have you been? I mean, you've always been a man of the people, Chuck. I mean, that's been a big part of your show is understanding or tapping into what people feel and what people are experiencing. I even I, I feel like a visceral reaction when you say quite rightfully, you know, COVID is still here and we're about to enter a sixth wave. And, I, and I'm, I'm looking at some of the data that the scientists, that the researchers, that the healthcare professionals are pushing out, and I'm going, a sixth wave. And then I also know what I feel personally and, and, and how I feel about, about trying to find some normalcy. And, and, and quite frankly, and some people might be upset to hear it, but how good it feels to go to a hockey game or how good it feels to sit in a restaurant. And I know that average, ordinary folks are trying to reconcile that. They're trying to find that balance of, of a public duty Right. And, 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 and of that sort of stick to that we need to maintain. And at the same time going, well, I mean, geez, you know, and, and, and it may not be a popular take. Right. It's much easier to to on your social media show the photos of you wearing a mask and staying home and continuing to wash your hands and do all the right things. But but people are people are ready to to try to get their lives back to normal, uh, if not for them, for the sake of their kids or or what have you. How are you finding that balance or how are you processing what you're seeing around you? Well, you know, I, I'm out there. I'm out there with, with real folks, and I count on the geniuses in the vaccine movement. Mm. You know, I am uh, constantly um, sort of perplexed by how many people want to buy into anti-vax when it's obvious, it becomes more obvious every day that, yes, people are getting COVID, but thank God for those vaccines. That's what's rescuing us. So to me, 
yeah, uh, you know, be out there in the world, engage in the world. Um, you know, I don't want uh, Edmonton or Winnipeg or Vancouver. I, I don't want a, a Shanghai in this country. For anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, just, you know, go, go online and see what's happening in Shanghai where, where 90 year olds, 90 year olds are screaming out their windows, begging for food because they're locked down because China's got this zero COVID policy. It doesn't matter that tens of thousands of Chinese every single day. So who knows how many hundreds of thousands of Chinese have COVID-19 right now. The government insists on this idea that you've got to lock it all down and you've got to get it down to zero. It's not possible to do that and people are suffering. I don't want us to have a Shanghai lifestyle. I don't think we ever will have, but that's not what I, I advocate for. I do advocate for people getting whatever boosters the real doctors are calling for and to please tune out, please, please tune out the witch doctors they're not helping things. Yeah. I saw somebody the other day, I mean, I'll just paraphrase them, but said something along the lines of when, when boosters are spun as some sort of an evidence that the vaccine's not effective or that, that COVID can't be beat or what have you, they said, just wait till these folks hear about the flu shot. It's kind of funny, right? Like, like most people don't think twice about getting their flu shot every year, every couple of years. But then when it comes to boosters, there's this great cynicism. And I don't know how you combat that, I guess, just with continued diligent public messaging and, and continuing to try to inform public opinion right well you've got to, you've got to keep reminding people that the vaccine is not about stopping you from getting the disease mm. the vaccine is from stopping you from entering a grave before your time it's about the avoidance of death it's about the avoidance of serious sickness anyone who sells you on the idea that vaccines don't work because people are getting covid is a lying son of a bitch Chuck, uh, I don't know where to go from here because I've got a list of about 15 things that I want to talk to you about. But but I opened the show today just with some general observations about what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, my stomach was twisted in all kinds of knots last night. Uh, graphic images, uh, as, as the storyteller, uh, the journalist that I was watching uh, was reporting, uh, there aren't even screens or tents or barriers around some of these mass graves as these remarkable people work to exhume these bodies to conduct proper autopsies to document these mass murders, quite frankly, Charles. And there are these Ukrainian citizens standing there, civilians weeping, obviously one woman there trying to trying to I mean. Chuck, these are corpses here, these bodies, and she's trying desperately to find her husband. She knows that he was shot and killed. She doesn't know where his body is. She's trying to find him. I get chills now as I'm even talking about it. I don't know how people wrap their minds around it. Uh, one of those that's participating in these autopsies said the thing that's driving him, the thing that's motivating him, that's giving him the strength he needs to do this work is that he's part of a team that intends to prosecute these alleged war crimes. And that's a, a work that's very important to him and, of course, will be important to people around the world. I know that you're obviously a very contemplative person uh, and a man with great conviction. Uh, as you see what's happening in Ukraine right now, what's catching your attention and where's your head at right now? My, my head is in one particular place, uh, and that's the 1940s. Uh, I lost a number of people. I, I will never even know how many when I, when I count the cousins and the uncles and nieces and nephews. Some of them were babies um, because, you know, I come from a, a tribe of, of Hungarian Jews. And in 1944, uh, the government of a country that uh, 
my ancestors were extremely patriotic uh, too, uh, fought in, in the First World War for the, for the king. Um, they were uh, marked for death. There's no simple way of putting it. Uh, they were, were targeted in a genocide uh, committed by the, the Nazi regime. Right now, you've got a Putin regime committing a genocide. Ever since I was a child, when I started reading about this and trying to figure out why my, my parents were a little, you know, as a child, I just thought of them as a little, you know, messed up, you know, and I didn't understand things like post-traumatic stress disorder or any of those things. But uh, reading book upon book upon book and keeping up with, with genocides around the world, I always believed that if in Europe, the scene of the Holocaust, uh, you had another genocidal megalomaniac operating in broad daylight, that bastard would be taken out. So I'm sorry, uh, I've got a mix of emotions, none of them positive, but I am angry right now with a world that does not seem bent on taking out Vladimir Putin. He will continue to commit genocide. Nobody who has ever started a genocide ever stopped until his heart was literally turned off. Mm. How do you evaluate the leadership, uh, the remarkable story of Vladimir Zelensky? I mean, I I don't know if you've checked out. I mean, whether it's on Netflix or Prime or whatever it is, but I'm streaming. I'm just it, I mean, it's fascinating to see this show. I think most people have seen this show where Zelensky as an actor is playing a guy that becomes the president of Ukraine. And then he actually becomes the president of Ukraine and, and is not only reasonably capable, uh, but is. I think has captured the attention of the world who continues to marvel at the leadership of someone who has been thrust into an incredibly impossible decision. What do you see in him? I see leadership in him. And when I, when I look at Zelensky and review what he's saying and what he's writing, um, it really does point out to us what a vacuum we have in leadership uh, everywhere in the world. But if, if I have one hope for someone who can motivate the world to do what's necessary in the case of Putin, it's Zelensky. You know, uh, P Putin to me is, represents Satan. And, and there's only one person that I can think of right now, but I'm glad that he's alive. I'm glad that we have him. I'm glad the world has a Zelensky because he's our one hope, our one weapon against the Satan at this moment. We're talking to Charles Adler, the Titan of Talk. Chuck, hang tight, because I want to ask you for your assessment on uh, the field right now, the federal conservative party leadership race. But first, I want to let you know that this interview is presented by our roster of sponsors that includes the remarkable team at Kubi Energy, uh, providing solar energy solutions to power your life. I was lucky enough to spend some time with Jake and Simon from Kubi Energy over the weekend. These guys, you ask them about the projects they're doing, their eyes light up. If you want to see some of the stuff they're working on, check out kubienergy.ca and click on projects there. You can check out what they've done with power systems for both residential and commercial applications. And, of course, these home solar power systems, the examples you'll see across Western Canada, it's what you get with Kubi. They're headquartered out of Edmonton and Kamloops. Their Tesla-certified installers can be on your roof this summer. You can get your free quote today at kubienergy.ca.
And if you're a partner with Kubi Energy, if you're one of their customers, you're also going to want to be taking your business over to Park Power. Why? Because Park Power has a great incentive, a solar buyback program. You can learn more on their website at parkpower.ca. That's also where you can compare rates for electricity, natural gas, and internet. And don't forget, when you take your business over to Park Power, the promo code 2022 Dash Real Talk knocks $70 off your first bill at parkpower.ca. Our friends at Eden Landscaping are ready to bring outdoor spaces to life. This is the time of year where they're firing up those backhoes, dusting off the shovels. Their teams are going to be into backyards and front yards across their area. And of course, they're going to be working with a design that's been envisioned or dreamed up by you and perfected by their team that's been earning the return business and the referrals of their customers for more than 20 years. You can learn more about what they do, browse their portfolio, see the proof of their performance at landscapeedmonton.ca. And if you're one of those families that right now is doing everything you can to ensure that your loved one in an assisted living scenario or your loved one who needs a little help with some of the everyday life kind of things, medication, food, fellowship, cleaning, laundry, socialization, all that kind of stuff. Can I turn you on right now to Infinity Healthcare? Can I put that on your radar? Infinity-8.ca is where you can learn more about the services that Infinity provides to ensure that the loved ones in your family are receiving the daily supports they need from a caregiver they trust. It's all part of the personality matching service that comes with Infinity Healthcare. Our guest today... A dear friend of mine and one of the most talented talk radio personalities in North American history. He's got the Emmy to prove it. Charles Adler. I thought that you might have somebody that that, that uh, is tuning in today. Charles said, well, that's a bit of a casual background. You're laying low in, 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 in your current retirement, although I know there's going to be a big comeback. I was expecting to when a guy's got an Emmy, where is the Emmy? Uh-huh. I expect the Emmy over the shoulder. I would have it right. Yeah. I'd have my arm around the Emmy if I was you. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I, I sometimes joke about bragging. I sometimes people don't know me think I'm a braggart, but I'm just a, a humble person, and I don't uh, the I have the Emmy, but I'm not, you know, I'm putting it up in the in in the shop window, and I'm I'm hardly retired. I've got uh, people calling on me all the time, and I'm doing uh, doing business uh, coaching and communications. But yeah. speaking of business, if you don't mind, uh, Ryan, indulge me for a few seconds here. Sure. I want to thank uh, the energy company and the car company and the heating company and all of the other companies that are supporting the most important live communications and podcasting going on in the Western world right now. And that's this show, Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Mm. Yes, I'm, 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 I'm counting on our devoted listeners and viewers, and I love them to bits, and I love them for subscribing to ryanjesperson.com. I'm a subscriber as well. But I'm really, really grateful to the sponsors because without cash flow, there ain't no business there ain't no Ryan Jesperson. There ain't no real talk. So God bless the clients, the customers, the sponsors. 
thank you so much for doing what you're doing. Well, that's amazing to hear, Charles, and I, I really appreciate it. And you're right, this doesn't happen without them and without the steadfast support of sponsors who who know what they're signing up for. They're, they're signing up to ensure, like you said, that there's going to be a platform for real conversations, not always popular conversations, but conversations that take us into areas where we need to go. I mean, you've had moments like that throughout your career, obviously uncomfortable moments or moments where we have those that those introspective kind of a I, I I've told you this story so many times you're probably sick of hearing it but I'm not sure I've ever told it on air but one of my favorite memories of listening to your show uh, I had just done a live broadcast out of Red Deer as a matter of fact we'd taken our TV show on the air and I was lucky enough to hang out with Ron McLean the legendary hockey broadcaster in Canada we did a live hit together I was on cloud nine I went back to my hotel room and listened to you because that was the day that the Jean Gomeshi story was breaking. And you went, and I'm certain, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you scripted it. I think it was off the cuff. And for about 15 minutes, you talked about your dad, and you talked about your family's history, and you talked about your upbringing and how that shaped your perspective, not just as a person, but as a broadcaster as well. And it was captivating because it was personal. And that was a really powerful moment. Do you remember that day? What I remember most about uh, what motivated me was the fact that I learned that shortly before the scandal hit uh, Gameshi and, and tore up his uh, career, tore it to shreds, it was just shortly before then that his, his dad had passed. And I was happy for his dad. And I, I never in my lifetime thought that I would be happy for someone who had just died. But I died inside every moment in trying to identify with what Gameshi was in. I don't know how that could have happened to my life, but I always try to put myself on the other side of the screen to, to try to figure out what's going on in people's lives where they, where they really live in their hearts and in their value systems. And I was thinking if something like that happened to me and my father was alive, it would kill him. And it would kill me to embarrass my dad and my dad's name that way, as I said earlier, I'm a proud scion of multiple generations of, of people who own general stores and were, were, were people who serve people. And that, that's what we do here and that's what we're doing right now. So I remember that was going through my mind. And of course, in, in connecting uh, Gameshi's dad and, and his recent demise to how I felt about my dad who had uh, recently passed, it made me talk about my, my father's values and and what he passed on to me, because there's, there's no way that I would be doing what I'm doing right now. There's no way that I would be alive and no way that I'd be motivated to be a communicator if it wasn't for being the son of one of the greatest communicators I've ever known, Mike Adler. Hmm. Uh, Charles, I want to ask you for your take on the, the Conservative Party of Canada, this leadership race. Uh, we can start with Aaron O'Toole, because I think it makes sense. Uh, it was, I guess, about the June, I think, off the top of my head, before the most recent federal election that Mr. O'Toole, I think, tried to get ahead of the objections when it came to things like carbon pricing or what the conservative climate plan was. You and I in 2019 sat on the global national desk together, and this is one of the big things we talked about, how voters in Vancouver and Toronto had essentially said that they didn't think that Andrew Scheer and the conservatives took a climate plan seriously enough. And I think Aaron O'Toole was trying to bring the party a little bit more mainstream on that, was trying to get ahead of that, ultimately lost the election and, and lost the support of his party. So here we are 
uh, early on. I don't want to put an opinion in your mouth, but uh, I suspect that you may agree with me that Pierre Poliev appears to be the front runner here. You've got Joshua Ray, you've got Patrick Brown, you've got Dr. Leslin Lewis, uh, perhaps others uh, set to declare. But what do you make of the campaign Mr. Poliev is running right now? He's getting a lot of attention. Well, there is a so-called leadership contest, but I, I say so-called because uh, you know, if, if if all of the play is in one end of the rink, it's not much of a contest. And sure. it just seems that uh, Polyev is the only one with a real vivid campaign. He's the only one with a campaign that's that's drawing people. I mean, Charest's uh, team is trying to say that it doesn't really count that Polyev is drawing big crowds. Well, <laughs> some people may buy that, but I mean, who honestly thinks that Justin Trudeau would have become a prime minister without crowds. I mean, who honestly thinks that anyone that we think of, whether it's American or Canadian, the premier, uh, you know, otherwise mayor, I mean, if you can't, if you can't draw flies, no one's going to remember who you are. So Polyev is drawing crowds. He's drawing enthusiastic crowds. He's drawing a lot of young crowds and uh, the young are no doubt feeling that, you know, the word freedom is often used. And I think freedom is the word freedom is used promiscuously because very often it's, it's, it's used in, a, in, in an incorrect sense. Uh, they're using the word freedom to make the case that someone is a dictator and we've got a real dictator named Putin around right now. So that, that part offends me. But I'll put aside how I, I personally feel about Polyev and the freedom versus tyranny thing that, that he's doing. I'll put all that aside and, and simply look at it squarely in the eye. Many people in this country, especially people under the age of 40, feel that their opportunities are being limited by the economic conditions of the country. And Pierre Polyev is given them a bogeyman. And the bogeyman is, is Justin Trudeau. And for people who want to buy into the idea that it's tough for them to buy a house or a car or anything else in this world, if they want to find someone to blame, Pierre Polyev is helping them to do that. And it wouldn't be the first time in history that uh, someone sailed into the leadership of a political party by bashing the hell out of the other party and uh, Pierre Polyev, whatever else I may think about him, he's a very effective basher. Sure. Uh, Jean Charest, uh, I think, a shot across the bow just a couple of days ago suggesting that Pierre Polyev's support of the trucker convoy disqualifies him. That's the word he used. It disqualifies him from political leadership. Uh, I would suggest, and it feels like perhaps one of the most obvious things I'll say this month on this show, that I think it's a liability for the Conservative Party writ large. I think if you go into a general election uh, leading a party as the guy who is bringing Timbits to the Ottawa occupiers, it's a tough look and it sets you up for criticism. That said, it's going to be a couple, maybe a few years from now before Canadians vote again. Perhaps the voters' memories will be short. But do you think Jean Charest has a point? Does the support of the convoy disqualify Pierre Poliev? Yeah, the, 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 the political problem that Jean Charest has is that uh, you almost never win a leadership by saying, oh, by the way, my opponent who's beating the hell out of me won't do very well in a general election. I mean, that's, that's interesting punditry, and it's not necessarily incorrect, but it just doesn't work effectively in, in terms of winning a leadership contest. But if you want to project down the road, whether the next election is two years from now or three years from now, yeah, the Liberal Party has a lot of so-called oppo research on Pierre Polyev, because Paul Pierre Polyev has given them room service in awful research, as you say, the, the Timbits uh, to the truckers. Look, at the moment, uh, Polyev is too white, too right, and too convoy. Mm. 
And in a party that represents diversity in a country that is becoming increasingly diverse, I think that he does at the moment make it very, very easy for the Trudeau team to whip him. He doesn't make it easy for the Charest team to beat him, but he does make it easy in a general for Trudeau to beat him. What do you make of uh, the two other candidates that I mentioned, Patrick Brown, Dr. Leslin Lewis? Uh, Dr. Lewis has her supporters. I'm, I, I don't suspect that she'll wind up winning this race, but she certainly has inserted herself into conservative political conversations over the past few years, and it's not necessarily easy to do. Uh, and then you've got Patrick Vown, Patrick Brown, rather, um, leadership candidate this morning getting people's attention. you got to do this type of stuff if you're running one of the underdog campaigns. Says he'll lift the ban on a designated terrorist organization, the Tamil Tigers, says he'll open up immigration to any Tamil family that wants to come to Canada. Uh, Brown's got his own challenges with his leadership as well. I think that more people need to be talking about the fact that these sexual harassment allegations, I do not think, have been put to rest. A lot of people say, well, whether the girl was 19 or 18 or splitting hairs, but I suspect that that's probably going to be a liability for him moving forward once the knives really come out. Uh, what do you make of those two's chances and the campaigns they're running this for? Well, Brown is trying to sell the memberships, and uh, Patrick Brown has had a tremendous relationship uh, with the South Asian community of Ontario, which is uh, primarily why he is now the, the mayor of Brampton, Ontario, a, a hub of, of, of South Asian Canadians. So that's what Brown is doing on this business about the, you know, the, the Tamil Tigers, because it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing issue in the Tamil community. And he wants to sign up Tamils, and he wants to sign up other South Asians, and no doubt he wants to sign up other Canadians as well. But but that's, you know, that that's the bet that he's making right now in this country, uh, that he can get uh, a diverse group of Canadians, one that doesn't look anything like uh, Pierre Polyev's crowd, uh, to to be competitive. And and that that's that's the card he's playing. If he's if he's to a point where he's actually talking about, uh, you know, sort of lifting the ban on the terrorist ban, the Tamil Tigers, to, to my lights, that one feels a bit desperate. It feels very specific. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, if it was a promise to to, to reevaluate how, how we apply this designation or bigger picture to have a conversation with Canadians about, about how we feel about unrest or terrorism or, or border security or international relations or something like that, maybe. But it, it feels strangely specific. And it, it feels to me like, you know, and, and maybe I'm not like, you, you know, you make a good point, Chuck. You say in this certain region, he has very strong relationships with these ethnic communities. And maybe it's something specific that he needs to really put a stranglehold there on, on membership sales. But bigger picture, you go, eh? like, I, I, it seems to me, you know, you know, it just seems a little kind of off kilter. Yeah, well, there's just politics one on one for Patrick Brown or anyone else who's paying attention. Yeah. Um, you generally can make points with Canadians asking for certain groups to be put on a terror list. You don't make points by asking Canadians to take them off the list. Yeah. Dr. Leslin Lewis, uh, check this out. I mean, she was just a pancake breakfast in Edmonton on Sunday in our home city. It looks to me to be a pretty packed house. I don't know how many people are in that gym. 300 maybe? 350? 400? I don't know. I've seen some people say there were a thousand people at the event total. You get in trouble when you start trying to pin down specific numbers on these things. But let's just say it's more than a few that came out to hear the member of parliament, uh, who I think 
is probably safe to say will occupy a, a certain spot there. I mean, with regards to the social conservatives, there will be some overlap with her and Pierre Polyev's supporters, of course. But what role do you see Dr. Leslie Lewis playing? She's already earned her way into parliament, obviously, and she's got her supporters. What does the future look like for Dr. Lewis in this party? Look, uh, there are a lot of social conservatives uh, in the conservative movement, especially when it comes to leadership, because the social conservatives in general are more active. Uh, they're more generous. Uh, you know, they, they, they give more. Their donations are higher per capita than the people who don't call themselves social conservatives. Uh, specifically, her role politically is likely the same as it was in the last leadership contest. Uh, she will sop up a lot of social conservative vote on the first ballot. And many of those people will go to Pyoliev on the second ballot. So what's her specific role? It's, I think, to be helpful to Pierre Polyev. Uh, and I think if Polyev does manage uh, to form a government, uh, Leslie Lewis will likely have a, a senior cabinet role. You think that uh, if, 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 the, if the vote were to go today, let's say hypothetically Pierre Polyev wins, or let's say hypothetically Jean Charest wins, I think that those are the two realistic possibilities. And if we're today, okay. I think that it would be Pierre that would win. Is a Pierre Polyev or Jean Charest-led conservative party a party that can beat the Trudeau liberals or the liberals with a different leader, let's say Christian Freeland or someone else, do you think that a party led by one of those two candidates could form government? Look, uh, even Stephen Harper, in his most candid moment, might agree with me on this. The liberals only lose when they beat themselves. They beat themselves in the uh, ad scam slash gomery contest that Stephen Harper ended up winning. And they beat themselves when they were uh, foolishly uh, making Stefan Dion uh, the leader. Uh, they beat themselves when they made the person I called the visiting professor, which is something the conservatives then then borrowed from me on the you know the whole just visiting campaign. So they beat themselves with Dion. They beat themselves with Ignatiev. They did not beat themselves with Trudeau. Can Trudeau beat himself? Possibly, possibly. But Pierre Polyev, Jean Charest, none of them win unless the Liberals beat themselves. Charles Adler, an Emmy Award-winning and RTDNA Lifetime Achievement Award-winning talk radio legend and one of my all-time favorites on a personal and a professional level. What a thrill to have you here making your Real Talk debut. This is the first of what I suspect will be many conversations. It's really nice to see your face this morning. Well, I want to thank uh, your viewers, your listeners, uh, your sponsors, and your producer, and you, uh, Ryan Jesperson, the the tornado of talk. Uh, what, a, what a treat this is. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. That's Charles Adler. What an absolute beauty. I'd tell you to go follow him on Twitter, but I suspect you probably already do. If you don't, you can find him at Charles Adler. And my thanks to him for making the time to talk to us. This is a great time to remind you that Friesen Brothers, you know, 16 locations across the province of Alberta, huge on family. They're family owned and operating. And for them... Real good food is a top priority. They know that you're going to Friesen Brothers oftentimes because you're preparing to host around your family table. 
And that may include Easter celebrations this coming weekend. Easter kind of snuck up on us, eh, pal? I just all of a sudden I was like, hundred oh percent Easter weekend's coming up. What? <laughs> Friesen Brothers has everything you're looking for for that Easter spread. You can browse their locations online at Friesen.com and learn more about their experiences, including the Butcher's Cookhouse Restaurant, the Mother Dough Bread Company, even the flower market. They've got you covered for Easter, and if you'd rather dine out, select Friesen Brothers locations, have an amazing opportunity, and all-you-can-eat Easter feast this weekend for just $25 a person. You can browse the locations, the special locations offering that all-you-can-eat Easter feast online at Friesen.com. Well, every Tuesday, uh, courtesy of our friends at Leading Edge Physiotherapy, we take a moment or two to recognize a person, an organization, a group that is truly making an impact. Courtesy of Leading Edge Physiotherapy, we present The Leading Edge. And in this week's edition, we are proud to shine the spotlight on Bent Arrow. You may know about Bent Arrow, but if you don't, it's a traditional healing society based out of our home city of Edmonton that's aimed at providing services, much needed resources for indigenous children, youth, and families. It connects indigenous people in our communities to social programs and outreach services, including employment resource centers, safe houses, early family intervention, and of course, amazing youth programs. Bentero also organizes various festivals and celebrations honoring and sharing indigenous traditions with the greater community. Now, their current project is fundraising to build a permanent sweat lodge in Edmonton. It would be the first of its kind, an innovative build as a permanent structure for indigenous families to gather, heal, to have ceremonies. It'll also serve as a place for education and cultural understanding to the greater non-Indigenous community. Our friends at Leading Edge Physiotherapy pledged to match the first $5,000 donated to Bent Arrow Traditional Healing Society in this campaign. They did that in one day. And that was a huge boost as it got them to their final goal of $75,000. Bent Arrow is hoping to break ground in the spring of 2022 for this project. You can learn more at bentarrow.ca. And you can learn more about what our friends at Leading Edge are doing by checking out leadingedgephysio.com. Leading Edge Physiotherapy. Life shouldn't hurt. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to have another perspective on that energy trade we were talking about today with David Knight Leg on international energy markets and Canadian roles in that. Max Fawcett, former editor of Alberta Oil Magazine, will join us, a national columnist with National Observer, plus another former colleague of mine, a new step, Linda Steele. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Technical producer, John Hicks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory. 
the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.